Hi and welcome to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Today is episode 103 and with me today is Dr. Brandon Roberts. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, because I'm, um, I'm British, um, well, no, I, in fact, that's a complicated conversation. <laughs> it's my first name, but I'll, today I'm going to go with just being British. Because I'm British, I'm going to briefly mention the weather. Um, it's supposed to be a beautiful summer hot day here in the UK, but no, it's absolutely chucking it down, which is why I'm wearing this top. Um, but uh, I'm assuming everything's all right with uh, where you are. I know there's some pretty nasty storms going on. Yeah, yeah, we've got some some storms coming through. It's starting to cool off here, so that's nice. Uh, the summer's coming to an end. Um, yeah, because you're in uh, yeah. Birmingham, Alabama. I've been there before. It was humid as, I won't say the word, but... <laughs> Man, it was hot. It doesn't matter how many layers of clothing you put on or take off. Ooh, pretty, pretty nasty. So, Brandon, um, the reason why um, I wanted to have a chat with you today for this episode, um, we've interacted um, a little bit um, uh, through uh, a variety of things. Hopefully, um, we'll have some other things to talk about um, in the future uh, should some work get published. So that would be kind of exciting. But... Um, there's a sort of recurring theme on on this podcast which has always come up one way or the other uh, either by the guests or by myself and it is you know this important need to bear in mind that there is a difference between um, an individual situation a person their needs and and what science might tell us because it's been generalized um, and, and a common statement that comes up is scientists um, usually, not always, but scientists will usually publish memes. So within that, the individual context can get lost. And also, because my main client interest for me personally is I work with elite athletes um, who tend to be, and by elite, I mean professional athletes, Olympic athletes, that sort of thing, and they tend to be, you know, extreme outliers. So this isn't, this isn't just something that I'm personally interested in. I think this is something that the audience will find of interest. Um, and if they haven't really started to break things down to the individual level, then, um, then hopefully uh, by the end of our session today, they'll be thinking more clearly. And, and there are so many different topics we could get into. And I know I got into this a little bit, just a little bit with Asker Yukondrup when we talked about responders and non-responders as it pertains to some endurance uh, re related research and so on. So today, though, um, what we're going to talk about is loosely, and as with all my podcasts, the, the content differs somewhat, but we're going to talk about inter-individual variability, particularly with responses to hypertrophy, um, but we'll get into related topics like strength training. Um, before we get into all that, though, why don't you just give us a quick overview as to who you are and what you're up to? Okay, so I have a lot of hats. Um, I'm a postdoctoral fellow, uh, so that's that gray area between when you finish your PhD and before you start your kind of tenure track position as a professor um, in Birmingham, Alabama. And we study, uh, again, resistance training and the response to it, mostly in older adults, but we do have some really cool work, which drew me to this position going on now in younger people. Um, so I was formally trained as more of a muscle biologist, I like to call it, where I studied you know, muscle atrophy, but 
I'm really interested in hypertrophy. So I switched, switched gears, and that's kind of the science side. Um, on the application side, I'm a coach for bodybuilders and powerlifters with the strength guys, um, and then I do a little bit of writing here and there too. So that's kind of the... the, the no, that's great. And like most of the guests that I uh, try and headhunt for this is your... Your mind is is not just specifically in in the lab. It, it's very much in practice because, as you know, when we talked offline, my my entire point to this is the whole science to practice translational concept. Um, there's no point talking about the science without its application being in mind. Um, and that I think in in sports science, exercise science can be quite an interesting thing. Is knowledge is pretty um, exciting in, in the health and fitness arena, so much so that enormous quantities of knowledge exists on social media. Um, you know, everyone's sort of regurgitating science and knowledge. Um, currently, there's a serious fetish for infographics and all sorts of stuff that's going on. But, of course, and, and my point is, you know, the context issue the environmental issues, the individual situation is constantly getting lost. But of the myriad of topics we could get into here, Brandon, um, I mean, what what got you specifically interested in this topic of of variability, particularly with hypertrophy? I mean, what, what you know, all the things you could have done. What, why why that particularly? So if you and and this is hard to find in the literature, but if you take a resistance training study and you look at the individual data points. Um, and we actually do this via a frequency histogram. So you can see the response, and it varies so widely across all these people. And you're, you're sitting there, and you're like, okay, well, I controlled for nutrition, I controlled for training, I controlled for all these things, and this person actually lost muscle, and this person gained two, two kilos in 12 to 16 weeks. So I was, try- I was trying to figure out why that happened, because I, we control for everything we can, um, so it must be biological. So that's the kind of, yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm always, I always find this word control interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, by virtue of human beings in their natural environment, I mean, how the hell are we supposed to control anything? Um, the, I had a really, uh, a very fruity conversation, we shall say, with John Hawley about this. And he's quite opinionated on this. And I, I particularly enjoyed that conversation because he really went to town on reminding us that, you know, there is, a, there is a serious amount of integration that's going on in the body. And, and I've had, God, I mean, just fantastic conversations with all sorts of people, especially in realms that you're interested in, uh, molecular biology and, you know, talk between muscle and other areas and, you know, the signaling processes and so on. I, I find this stuff absolutely fascinating, but it's like anything... Um, we're we're only we're only picking up what we're seeing, but that is limited by our ability to see what we see, which might be only a fraction of what's actually really out there. So of course we're we're running wild with this stuff and making assumptions. So of course that's why you guys are controlling all of this stuff. But I mean, how do you how do you actually deal with that in something that really is so complex? And we'll we'll get into this a bit because. When we're talking about training and nutrition and all that and genetics and all the things I hope to get into, I mean, like, 
like how are you actually going to tease out all those separate bits and bobs? <laughs> that, 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 that stuff's pretty, pretty hard, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's difficult, but our, um, and you know, obviously we can't control for everything. The, the, the interesting thing that I've found is as science evolves, we have to go back and reevaluate our data. Um, so the papers I sent you, I'll kind of mention something later about that. Mm. But um, as far as controlling, we have, you know, as much as we, we can have with older adults who are pretty regimented, right? So if you're talking about um, sleep cycles and daily living stuff and then nutrition and stuff like that, it's mostly in that population standard. Uh, people love their routines. Uh, we also, on the back end, right, we try, to, we try to control for all that. We have, you know, various means. But on the back end, we can run analysis to say, you know, well, if we adjust for, you know, training intensity, did, did anything change? Or if we adjust for sex or, you know, various factors. So that's a kind of a post hoc thing that we can do. Um, but, you know, like I said, it's hard to control for everything. We do just the best we can. Yeah, no, I... Look, the reason I'm mentioning this is just so that when we're looking at this information, we're just mindful of the quality of mm -hmm. information. And we have to, as practitioners in particular, which you are obviously also, is, is we, you know, we've got to use what we've got to use and we've got to apply that in practice like a tool in a toolbox. We just need to have an appreciation for what it is and what it isn't. And I think often we're overly focused on what it is and what it might be and not so much on what it's not. Mm -hmm. um, which is why I like having these com conversations. Um, so if we, if we bring this back to a basic concept, which is someone's going to the gym, they're, they're lifting, they're training, they're doing something. Um, when you look into the literature, they tend to be described as, as people who are responding or non-responding, or in those papers you sent me, you've got sort of your non-responders, medium responders, extreme responders. Um, and also I saw mentioned um, in the gray area there, which I loved the most, was uh, not yet responding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I think that's, that's also an important issue um, that we could get into. Um, and I mean, I know like ASCO was like, it's not that thing, it's responders, non-responders. It's just, it, it's complex, obviously. Um, but let, let's just describe that. A couple of definitions then. So when, when we're saying, basically in a you know on the gym floor it's like i'm not seeing results but mm. in your in your in the more sciencey area of responders non-responders i mean why why are those why do those terms exist and why is that relevant to this area okay so our definition and there's it, it's hard because we have a very specific definition um, since we're dealing with with resistance training our definition is the hypertrophy of type two muscle fibers. Um, and we also have DEXA data where we look at lean body mass, generally in the kind of thigh area. So if they respond, they'll increase one of those two things, a certain amount. Um, if they don't respond, they basically either kind of regress or uh, don't you know, add any muscle. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the, the caveat to this type of um, interpretation so yeah and uh, just to well i guess it's um just a little flick back to our previous conversation about all the data that exists out there and all the noise 
Um, in this, I mean, give us an idea of how much actual, I mean, you don't have to be overly specific, but just roughly, how much actual research is there in this topic? And, and in your opinion of, of the research in this area of inter-individual inter um, responses to hypertrophy training, would you say is quality research and maybe not so quality? Um, so we're the one of maybe two labs that really dig into this uh, varied response. But if you look into the research, you can see it um, all over the place, right? So as you kind of mentioned, people like to report means, but there are people who report individual data points, so like before and after training. Um, and if you go look at that data, you know, you still see a nice spread of some people did really well and then some people didn't. Uh, so I think it's there. I just think we haven't, we don't have the numbers to figure it out, right? So our clinical trials are 60 to 120 people, but most of the exercise science studies are maybe 8 to 15 people. Um, so I just don't think people are kind of prepared to study this kind of uh, response that occurs. Sure. When I was reading some of the work you sent me, um, and I've sort of read similar stuff in different places, but something that really stands out is the actual amount of difference that has been observed in training responses. And um, from what I saw, the variation off the top of my head was about 5 to 30% in both strength and hypertrophy. Now, at my end of the spectrum with elite athletes, 5%, actually, I'd be all right with that. But... You know, a lot of people are nowhere near that end of the spectrum, and yet they're still not really, you know, benefiting much. Why, um, I mean, we'll see what rabbit holes we go down into this, but why is there so much variation? I mean, that's, that's not just 1% or 2%. That is 25% difference, which is massive. What, what, I mean, why would that be seen? Um, okay, so most of our research is based around satellite cells uh, and I'll go ahead and get get into the, the rabbit hole as you said yeah. um, and I think and the data kind of suggests this that the people who respond the best so those extreme responders that have a and you're right about a 40% increase in uh, muscle fiber size compared to the moderate who have about a 20% increase um, so those extreme responders incorporate satellite cells quicker or more in general. Um, the limitation of a 16-week study is, you know, just that these moderate responders may become what we call extreme responders given another 8 or 12 or 16 weeks. Um, but in the time frame we study them, you know, they have this accelerated hypertrophy. Um, and that's mainly due, I think, to uh, satellite cells and then there may be some muscle protein synthesis differences. Um, I haven't seen too much of that in the literature, and we're not really equipped anymore to study that. Um, but we, we used to. So, so you know, I think a lot of us that are interested in strength and conditioning, which I am, um, particularly how nutrition influences strength and conditioning, one does come across this stuff from time to time. But it's not very often I come across papers that have actually looked at satellite cells or um, molecular signaling. And, you know, it, it does strike me that there's quite a large variation in what's actually being looked at. And presumably, um, and I think I know the answer to this, that also influences what we can take from that. 
as it would relate back to the interventions we might come up with as trainers or coaches or those that are designing training studies, for example, um, perhaps you could just elucidate what, why, why, why is it relevant that these studies in this topic are looking at things like satellite cells rather than just here's a DEX, here's the program, this is what they did, this is what DEX has said, they're swole. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we're, we're trying to get into the mechanisms um, and we have this really cool, one of the reasons I came here was we, we you take muscle biopsies, which is kind of rare, um, but we can actually take them in vitro and culture them in a dish and mimic the kind of person that's in the gym. Um, and, and really get into the, the molecular uh, details. But what, there's so much that, that's just kind of unknown. Uh, what we've done is over the past probably 10 or 15 years, and this is much before my time, is we've kind of developed or shown that there are these non-moderate and high responders. Then we went on to, and this paper should be published soon, um, we just sent in uh, the, the comments. We did an exercise dose response, and we did that over 35 weeks. So we we said, okay, even if we kind of manage the dose, are there still these people who dose don't respond? And there were surprisingly in all of the doses. And and so we've taken a step further and added um, a drug, but we'll we'll that's kind of down the line a little bit. So. So, you know, as we're, uh, and I fear a rabbit hole, a black hole rabbit hole opening up here, but as we start to disappear down this whole molecular signaling thing, and I, and I have to say I've had mind-boggling conversations with, um, um, I mean, all sorts of amazing people. Um, I won't list them off now because uh, folks can just go through the backlog, but, you know, it, it, it's absolutely fascinating. I can't pretend I understand it all, but I understand more than I did. But there's a lot of things that can influence things like signaling and, you know, there's debate about the relevance of gene expression as it relates to this and, you know, what are the things that we can do to enhance or, you know, in some way influence that. Um, I mean, the reason why I'm mentioning this is we're looking at all this stuff because we can. But... But should we? Is it distracting? You know, like, I mean, that rabbit hole thing, I think it's a good, good example or a red herring or however you want to describe this. But is it, is it something that you think is particularly meaningful and it is therefore something we should be looking for in the papers that we're, that we're coming across or, it, it, or really are we in, in an area of we still don't, you know, we just don't know. Um, it's interesting, but you know, don't get overly absorbed. Let the experts worry about it, but us as consumers of this information, maybe you know, maybe not such a concern. Yeah. So I think from an application standpoint, um, we we tend to get you know bogged down, but ultimately, what we care about is performance, and you see this in like almost all of the literature, where they'll take some surrogate measure, maybe a blood marker, a biomarker and they'll say oh this improves performance and then later they'll actually test performance and they don't see a difference um, so the neat thing about our work is yeah we can categorize these people um, into responsiveness but ultimately we're still trying to figure out what happens and there's probably nothing we can do about it 
um, as of now, ultimately the goal is always let's make a drug, <laughs> right? Um, so we're, we're far away from that. But as a practitioner, I would say maybe you have an athlete and these, are, these will not be elite athletes at all. Um, so the non-responders may come in, you may train them for six months, they're, everything's kind of on point, um, and you just don't see the normal response. Maybe you see a little bit, and then they kind of plateau. Um, so just to be aware that those people exist, I've, I've, I've only ever had one, um, and he was an in-person client, and that was probably like five or six years ago. Um, but other than that, you know, when you're working with elite athlete, they're all, they're all extreme responders. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the word responders and non-responders is, is, I don't know what other term you would come up for it, but I, I do feel it's the one that's adopted and that's being used, but perhaps might not be the best term, only because people feel that they're being segregated into being a responder or a non-responder. Because, of course, if you want to open that up, and it's my favorite context word, I mean, okay, they might not respond to that, but they might respond to something else or... Um, as we alluded to earlier, they might not respond yet. Um, so why do some people respond when others don't? I mean, what, what, scientifically, from what we know, what, I mean, what is actually the rationale here? What, what is going on? Um, okay, so one of the areas, and I just uh, submitted a fellowship on this, is I think some people... Uh, can't handle the inflammatory response that occurs due to training. Um, and we're going to look into a bunch of different receptors and see what's there. But it, it's almost as if some people take the training as an insult and they don't adapt. Um, so maybe they adapt neurally, right? So you see, you know, yeah, they gain strength. That's mostly neural adaptation. They'll gain 20% on a leg extension or a squat or something. Um, and then you don't see any muscle hypertrophy uh, at basically at all. Um, so I think there's some type of inflammatory component. Um, I'm not, you know, positive what it is and it's probably more than you know, one factor. So, well, it, yeah. So as I said, I've spoken to a few people about this sort of thing. And the, the, when we get into the whole molecular signaling um, sort of alien language type scenario here. Um, there is stuff that's going on, obviously. The, the exercise is a stimulus and that whole cascade of messaging occurs and there's a lot that, that can influence um, the, the, you know, each signal and how that's interpreted and translated and so on and so forth. And I know like when I talk to Professor Graham Close, for example, we were we were having a topic, a conversation about antioxidants on a different area. But one thing that came up there, because um, as you know, nutrition is a big area of interest for me. Um, you know, one's obsession with dealing with um, anti, uh, you know, oxidants and um, even DOMS and um, um, for all things, just being super healthy. Let's just completely, you know, inhale. Um, huge amounts of antioxidants, but of course that actually may have a negative impact on the signaling process, which could dampen those signals and actually could have a, a very negative impact also on the immune system and so on. It's all very interesting. Um, do you think that that sort of thing, whether it's 
voluntary habits by someone, um, whether it's um, anything from uh, nutritional issues, are you overdoing it, underdoing it, overtraining, you know, where, where our own habits and behaviors, whether it's linked to, you know, to nutritional training or whatever, are those also factors that, that would fall into whether they're a non-responder? And by that, I mean, it's not just a physiological thing. It's not just a genetic thing. It might just be a habitual, you know, a byproduct, a symptom of, of their current lifestyle that is enforcing a non-response scenario. Yeah. So when I first, um, kind of came into the lab, I was like, I was like, I don't, I don't know if this non-response thing is, is real. I was like, I, I don't know if I believe it. So I went down to the training center and they have training logs, much like a, a normal trainer would take, you know, bench press, X load, X reps. And I looked through all of them and the non-responders, um, they never really improved. And, and that could be totally a behavioral thing because when, um, you go into the clinic and I do this just occasionally and help out and train kind of our participants. Um, you see people who come in and they, they don't want to be there. Right. And, and they may have all kinds of bad life, ha lifestyle habits and we don't have, well, we, we didn't at the time. Now we do have any kind of questionnaire or, you know, tracking device to say, you know, are these people just different behaviorally? Um, so I think, that's something I'd like to get into in the future. Um, but as a, a translation to kind of application, um, hopefully your athletes are, are motivated. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I mean, it's fair to say, isn't it, that as long as someone put, I mean, of course, this, if we break this down to super basic stuff, like our conversation before about my not turning my microphone switch on, which is, <laughs> but anyway, basics, coming down to basics, like, before we start even, you know, flirting with the idea of being a responder or a non-responder, because it's very easy to say, oh, well, you know, um, I'm not, you know, this isn't working for me because I'm a non-responder. I mean, I, you know, people, you know how people love to identify mm -hmm. uh, with that scenario or, you know, a practitioner may use that as an explanation for the fact that they're not getting results. I mean, I'd hate to think that that's the case, you know, but it is entirely plausible. So, I mean, with, you know, with that in mind, you know, there is the obvious sort of elephant in the room, which is the significance and relevance of the training program itself. Mm -hmm. um, that presume, I know you can control for that in, your uh, training studies, you're all highly educated and um, with scientists like yourself who are also top quality coaches, I can see that being well controlled for. But out in the big wide world, I mean, it is difficult to become a good coach and keep up with all this science, which is fast and fluid. At a very basic level, you know, at what point can we say, yeah, training's probably not the problem? Um, so I, I kind of tell my, my athletes this, um, it's, it's that I expect, you know, a response in the first six months, especially if they're, if they're like brand new, um, you should see quite a bit of strength increase, mainly from motor control, like motor type things, um, neural, and then out to six months, you know, standard is maybe three to 
five pounds or two kilos of muscle mass gain. Now the problem is you can't always see that. And then you also have a kind of a recomposition effect sometimes. So where they'll, they'll actually lose fat, gain muscle um, if they're new. And then the scale doesn't actually change. And they're like, I don't understand the, the scale didn't change. And I'm like, well, look at your pictures. <laughs> so yeah. 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 Well that, yeah. Well, I've gone into that quite a bit on, um, body composition related topics but i guess it's i guess it's what's inside what what's inside the black box the you know to come back to this molecular stuff you know a, a, a one's molecular profile isn't something that we can just you know lift up the hood the bonnet whatever terminology we want to use and see what's going on you know and when you read the research there's all sorts of stuff going on about you know, enhanced transcriptional regulation and um, something I do want to get back to is the satellite cell function situation and all this signaling, you know, um, and, and what I feel is immensely impressive is the plasticity of, of muscle. Um, you know, I, I, like I said, there's so much there and there's so much that you might be able to control for, but for us as practitioners, you know, if we're even going to go down this respond and non-responder profile, um, th there's a lot of this stuff that has to be factored into. So I guess if we just pick a couple of those, the the the, the genetic, the gene expression side of it, that you know, because you hear that, oh, his genetics just aren't, you know, but they, you know, presumably without using gear or you know other methods of cheating um or however you, you know it wasn't necessarily cheating it's a strategy that in certain scenarios is frowned upon obviously but you know apart from all that what you know what sort of role would you say that genetics has on this um so it has a pretty 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 large role um you know you can't pick your parents as they say um but and, it, and it's difficult because we don't have, like, I, I can't say, you know, X gene or this combination of genes is responsible for um, your kind of response to training. There, there is one, there's one or two kind of genome-wide um, association studies where they say, okay, well, in, in the people who gain the most muscle mass, this is the set of genes they kind of have and express well. Um, now, the, the problem is with kind of, gene studies is we're not ultimately um, interested in the gene response. We're ultimately interested in how that translates to protein, right? Because muscles are made of protein. Um, so there's sometimes a disconnect even there. Uh, so they have, you know, with the, um, the kind of things you can send in your saliva and get a kind of a genome wide thing back. They don't have enough data yet to really say anything. Um, so you can't really pick out, you know, what you're looking for. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, just to remind everyone why I'm getting into this is simply that there is often a one-size-fits-all approach. Like particularly, you know, I've worked a lot in historically in team settings, rugby primarily. And, you know, it's not, you, you can't, it's really difficult to just train individuals. You, you, there are many scenarios where you have to do, a, you know, group training sessions and, and so on but nonetheless a team is still a bunch of individuals and um snc coaches sports scientists whether you're working with pt clients or whatever 
you know, you, you've, you've got your client base. It might not be a team, but it might be your 20, 30, 40 clients or whatever. You, you know, we do need to be very aware that there are going to be differences between people. Perhaps there's more similarities than there are differences, which we can get into. But when I'm reading through those papers that you sent me, um, there, there was one theory that I thought was interesting that you certainly don't hear much about that does drive many of these differences, which is myonuclear addition. I would love to understand that concept a bit more. So perhaps you could explain why that seems to be relevant. Okay, yeah. So this is an age-old uh, kind of theory. Hmm. And it's the myonuclear domain represents the cytosolic space, so the space that the, the nucleus can kind of control, for lack of a better term. Um, and we've, through our studies and lots of other people, have found that this might be around 2,000 microns. Now, if you're under your myonuclear domain, so that 2,000 mark, about that, you have the ability to get to that ceiling without um, inducing any satellite cells. So, you know, initially, maybe the first 12 weeks of training or eight weeks or whatever, you get to your ceiling and you're there. But to go beyond that, because the myonuclear domain is supp supposedly constant, um, you need to add in nuclei. And the only way to, to do that is to incorporate these satellite cells, um, which allow your more nuclei and, uh, and more domain. Um, so that's kind of the idea behind that. Again, it's, it's more of a theory, but all of our data kind of shows that that ceiling is about 2,000 to 2,200 microns. So, you know, when people are talking about this stuff, particularly on the consumer level or, you know, um, I was about to go down a dangerous uh, rabbit hole there, I think I'll leave it there. But the, 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 when people like to discuss this who aren't necessarily people who are like yourself who are trained scientists and, and so on, it's, it's sort of the rest of us that are picking up bits of information, which is obviously a dangerous thing. But they love to get into the whole hormonal thing. Um, now, I, I do remember a really interesting conversation, um, well, a whole podcast with Stu Phillips, Professor Stu Phillips, and that, that was, well, I've done a few with him, obviously, about protein, but one in particular about the hormone hypothesis. And one thing we have to remember is the difference between a supraphysiological, you know, dose of um, an anabolic hormone, for example, i.e., um, in that milieu within the within the muscle tissue those cells and, and tissues are constantly bathed in in that hormone which is very different from the pulsatile effect of a hormone that those of us that aren't taking any additional um shall we say supplementation in that regard um and yet it it, it becomes um a topic of extreme um focus for many people because they love to talk about well you know this training increases the anabolic response or whatever so so given particularly with men you know who get older there are thoughts about well you know maybe testosterone levels start to lag you know once you get into the adult world of having to pay bills and mortgages and so on stress the potential inhibitory effect of, of things like uh, uh, cortisol um, on testosterone and so on do, do you feel that that is an area that might have some relevance too, particularly with 
you know, very stressed out middle-aged guys who aren't responding. Could there be a, a, an issue there as well, you think? Yeah, I, de I definitely think it can. I have an, an athlete that is um, who has a very low, low test levels, um, and it affects everything from training to recovery to mood, right, appetite. Um, and as we, as we age, right, if you looked at some of the papers I sent, we, we do have a reduction in testosterone. Right, it may not be huge, but it's there. Um, but even when we kind of control for that testosterone reduction, we still see a difference in responsiveness. So it's important, um, and you know, it'll elevate mood and give you a better response to have slightly higher testosterone. And we're talking again within that physiological range, so 300 to 900. You know, difference between 400 and 600, you're not going to notice. But if you go from 400 to 900, maybe you, you do notice that. Um, so it's important, but unless you're going to take something or go on HRT or something, you can't really do a lot about it um, as long as your diet is you know, relatively optimal and, um, sure. and everything like that and sleep too. So Yeah, so I mean, let me, let me just – I'll try – I mean, that was great. And I, I just – the reason why I want to talk about this briefly is because it is something you see particularly in, you know, in the more fringe areas of, of science, particularly social media, um, quotes on quotes experts, who do like to have this whole sort of routine, whether it's dietary or training influences on hormonal responses, hormone manipulation and – so on, which is um, perhaps more playing to the myth than to the actual reality where you could obviously spend your time, attention and anxiety could be better spent, you know, <laughs> elsewhere. I mean, would you say that that is a, uh, I'm not trying to lead you with this question, but would you say that that whole thing is, is you know, is, is, is not necessarily a complete waste of time in certain scenarios, but it is largely a little silly or... I mean, you know, to, if you're a coach talking to a coach, you just happen to have a PhD, you know a lot about this. What's your quick response to someone who thinks that that's wor a worthy path to go down? Um, you know, I would say that you can't change it enough for it to matter <laughs> um, without going a pharmaceutical route. That's, that's what I would probably tell them. Awesome. Yeah. Well, so, so we have a going, another common theme um, that's uh, come out of this podcast uh, it was born in a podcast with sean aaron actually but um it, it it's loosely you can but should you so yeah you yeah. can do it yeah it might have an impact but should you bother on the grand scheme of things it's just not relevant mm -hmm. um okay so if we can um just sidetrack a bit um because i don't want to forget um we mentioned satellite cells and I know that, again, that's something that can get a bit technical when you start reading into it. But, you know, is there, in terms of inter-individual variability, you know, do we all have the same setup for satellite cells um, or um, is there some variability there as well? Hmm. So that's, that's a really good question. I, I know our data has everyone within a certain range. So it's, I, I think it's like four to six satellite cells per, per kind of area. Um, but I have not looked at anyone else's data. I know that there's some correlation with 
like fiber size increase with satellite cell number. Um, so maybe if you have more satellite cells, you have the ability to increase size more, which would make sense. Um, but yeah, it seems, you know, to be about even across the board. Uh, maybe I might have to dig into our data and, and revisit that, that idea there. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, this might be, this might come back to that basic idea of, there is some variation, but that's only significant under a microscope. It's not, you know, doesn't add up to anything massive. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because the idea of a threshold, um, like in some of the papers you sent me, for example, they talk about things like myonuclear domain ceilings, for example. But I like that idea of a threshold. For example, when we're talking about um, a slightly different topic, of course, which is, um, say, uh, carbohydrate loading. Um, the, the, the reason why, particularly if you're interested in body composition, for example, it is relevant not to just constantly feed carbohydrates um, as it relates to, um, you know, glycogen reloading, for example, um, because you only need the amount of fuel that is required for the work, right? Mm -hmm. You go over and above, there are consequences to that. So that, so in nutrition, I think there's a threshold. There's a threshold for calories. There's, you know, you need, there's an optimum amount of, say, protein, but there can be too much, although that's a gray area if you're talking about muscle protein synthesis or if we're talking about enough, for, you know, satiety, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but as it relates to this area, the idea of a threshold or a ceiling, I thought might be interesting um, because... I'm assuming that that everyone's going to have a different ceiling or threshold, which maybe that comes back to genetics or, or maybe that threshold is something that does adjust according to training or types of training. And then I guess we, we come back to limiting factors, which we may or may not even know. I mean, is that a rabbit hole you think? Or <laughs> Well, so, so our data kind of suggests that everyone – has the same threshold. Um, it's just getting to that threshold may take longer for some people. Um, some people may actually start the training and already be there, right? So then you're, you have to say, okay, well, is the training volume or intensity, or whatever, enough to kind of increase the threshold where they have to incorporate more satellite cells? Um, so even women, have you know the same kind of ceiling it might be a little bit lower maybe 1800 instead of 2000 um but where they hit that and they kind of like okay well now now we got to change something <laughs> and the stimulus might be you know more training it might be um some well so i'll, I'll just kind of leave it there but yeah yeah, yeah, I, but it is, it is interesting. Um, and no doubt over the years with advances in molecular biology, for example, I'm sure many of these questions are going to be, you know, open wide. Um, right, let's just go about nutrition because um, I think this is an area that could be rather interesting. We've, we've delved a lot, obviously, on this podcast into the roles of things like protein and carbohydrate restriction as it relates to adaptation and signaling and all sorts of stuff but 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 very specifically as it relates to hypertrophy and this concept of inter-individual variability what sort of role does nutrition have and i guess we could split that into chronic and acute nutrition because 
um, there's definitely going to be a difference, I would imagine, there. Yeah, so our, um, I kind of re revert back to the, um, a lot of the protein researchers uh, on this aspect because we use uh, dietary recall in our, um, in our clinical trials, and that, that can be okay, but it's not the best. Um, and even when we kind of match for protein intake, we still see the difference in response. Um, and that was, I think one of the papers I sent was at 0.8 uh, grams per kilogram, which is the RDA over here. And then at 1.6 grams per kilogram, um, you still see the differential kind of response. So that's more, I guess, chronic. Um, acutely, we know protein synthesis can be maxed with, you know, 20 to 40 grams of protein. And we actually give, or in, in these older studies, they used to give protein shakes right after the workouts. Um, so if that made a difference, the, it was there. Uh, I don't know if it did uh, per se, but um, kind of acutely, that's what they thought back then. So that's what they did. So, so of the, of the things that would strike you as having an ob obvious negative impact, and maybe I'll, I'll just nudge you into some areas that I think might, might have a role. So for example, energy restriction, um, mm. when an athlete is particularly physique athletes, um, I mean, recreational athletes who are lifting, it's usually not for the health, although we'd like to think many, particularly older people, but it's usually so they can look good. Um, and, and, and chances are they're playing around with their diet, and chances are, particularly if they're physique athletes, um, then um, they could well be in a state of energy restriction, even though they might be just dousing themselves with protein, which is more likely nowadays. Um, energy restriction then, what, what sort of role do you think that that might have on this? Um, so it's kind of unique because as a, as a trained athlete, right, if you're in, an, in a deficit or you're restricted, you're probably not going to respond to training as well um, as someone who's in a surplus or even at maintenance. Um, so, you, so you normally see maybe a maintenance of lean body mass instead of an increase. Um, but again, going back to most of these subjects are untrained, so they can actually gain a little bit of muscle and maybe lose some fat or just stay the same. Um, but so that aspect of nutrition is, is harder um, in these bigger trials, I guess. I don't know if I actually answered your question, so. Well, yeah, no, I mean, look, it's difficult because, you know, I, I think people are going to um, vary their nutrition intake one way or the other. If you're interested enough to train to increase muscle mass, chances are you're also doing the nutrition thing. I think, I mean, especially nowadays, nutrition has got so much attention. Um, I don't think most people overshoot their nutrition and undershoot it unless they are very specific, highly motivated, mm -hmm. uh, physique orientated athletes. Um, but nonetheless, it, you know, it, in someone who's a non-responder, I guess the logical answer there is if they're not responding to training, they're almost certainly going to try eating more. But, you know, it, it, it would be a factor if it hasn't already been considered, you know, um, having enough uh, energy and substrates would obviously um, have an impact in the ability to train and sustain, 
sufficient amounts of training over time to bring about a, a training stimulus. Um, of late, you know, uh, the whole BCAA thing's gotten totally smashed. Um, that's been rather an interesting um, situation. Uh, in fact, we just released a, a, an info video all about this. But um, with regards to the intake of, of supplementation of protein, um, the quality of amino acids in, in someone's diet, um, you know, generally speaking, do you think that that is relevant to this responder, non-responder as it pertains to the hypertrophy scenario? Given the quality of someone's protein intake um, is likely to vary from person to person. Yeah, I think, you know, that's something that we might need to, and we looked at it in one of the, the papers where if you're not hitting your leucine threshold, maybe maybe you're, that's a, a cause of you not responding as well. Mm. Um, but in, in several of our papers, we do kind of look for that specifically, um, either, you know, the types of protein, um, because especially the, uh, the women, you know, if you, if you only have one protein bolus a day, um, it's going to affect your response. And usually, you know, it's like 40 grams or something. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's important obviously to get in the kind of required or sufficient dosage of protein to enhance that response. But I don't know that if you took someone who's eating, say, one gram per kilogram and increase that to three grams per kilogram. If they're a non-responder, that's going to change anything because yeah. I'm not sure. So. No, you're, I think within the language you used, I, you sort of answered my question, which I, I think goes back to it's a variation on you can, but should you in reverse in that um, if they're a non-responder, this is probably a different conversation. Um, I think what you're saying is there's a difference between being a responder or a really good responder. Um, yeah. Might be a, a bigger factor there. But again, it's something that comes up on the, you know, on the, on the, on the gym floor. It's like, oh, you're not growing, therefore you need to smash more protein, you know, um, which, which, you know, which might be uh, good for the supplement company or the people that are selling the product, but it's probably not really what, not really what's going on. Um, so if we, if we come back to the adaptability of skeletal muscle, you know, we talked about hypertrophy. I've mentioned it's awesome how, you know, the plasticity of muscle is pretty, pretty amazing. Um, we did mention before, um, you know, if they're not responding, um, by improvements in hypertrophy, they might be responding elsewhere. Is mm -hmm. that? telling us then maybe um, this might go back to um, the collection of muscle fiber types that they've got. And maybe time might be a bigger factor here, which brings us back to the not a responder yet. Um, because of course, a lot of these interventions are over the course of a few weeks or maybe a couple of months. It, you know, what, what, sort of, what sort of timing should someone allow for their training and nutrition and so on before they feel that they really truly might be a non-responder? Um, so I would say if you're doing everything right mm. and you get to a year and you're like, and maybe you have a coach who, who like a well-known coach who really knows what he's doing and he's like, man, I don't, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> um, and you've tried multiple 
um, training frequencies, multiple volumes. You're not like overstressed or over fatigued and you're sleeping, you know, it, if you get to a year and you haven't put on, you know, a few pounds of muscle, um, you may want to consider switching to a different sport if you're a physique athlete. Um, and may, maybe you're more in tune with the, uh, you know, the endurance adaptation. Uh, because when we look at response, and we don't, we don't do um, endurance response, but the literature, if you look at the literature, there is maybe a 10% response rate in resistance training. But if you look at resistance training and endurance training, only maybe half a percentage of people don't respond like respond to one of those two. So maybe you're just you, you switch over to endurance training and you do really well. So the, the reason why I'm mentioning this is only because I've experienced this myself in my practice, particularly in the early days, was I mean, if we use the phrase managing expectations, you know, to manage my expectations as, as a practitioner or as a coach back in the old days. And most importantly, to manage the expectations of my client. If if they're in a situation where, um, let's say they've been doing something completely different, you know, they've been all about endurance and da, 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 da. now they're like, hey, I want to bulk up, I want to gain gain some muscle because I'm getting married next week <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> you know, the, the, there is a, an assumption. I mean, I lift some weights, take some protein, and I'm going to look like Arnie in a week or two. The, 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 I think just because we're more or less at the end here, I think what I'm trying to say is that in this conversation, there should also be an understanding and an appreciation for time and how long these things take. Now, I know you've elucidated to um, it might, you know, you should allow up to a year. I know it's going to be very difficult for me to convince a client to come back to their next appointment <laughs> if they haven't seen something happen in a month or so. Um, but so that we're armed as practitioners and so that younger scientists who are designing studies and so on can also have an idea of what they should take from their training studies is, 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 is this idea of before you're assuming you're a non-responder and our previous conversation on the length of time, what, you know, what sort of changes are likely to occur over that week, month, several months period that would be realized in a mirror um, or in the gym, do you think, loosely? Um, okay, so initially you have that, and this is wonderful for clients, because I, I, I have to kind of talk them back a little bit too, um, because muscle just, especially when you're trained, it just grows slow. Like, it takes a long time to put on muscle. Um, but if you switched from maybe another sport or something, you have that initial growth in strength, which is enough to keep people going, right? So maybe you bench 100 kilos, and after six weeks, you bench 120 kilos. And you're like, oh, man, that's, that's huge. Um, and then you look in the mirror, and just kind of inherently, when you resistance train, if you haven't been, you feel better. Uh, there are you know, tons of health benefits. But if, you're, if you have an area that you haven't trained maybe if you're a runner and you start training your chest and your arms right so those are gonna grow a little bit faster than maybe your legs um so and most people don't really care about legs anyway so uh yeah i'd say maybe a, a pound or so um you can see it in the mirror you can take measurements with like a tape measure um across your different areas to tell where you're gaining muscle or losing fat or whatnot. 
So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it just so happens. I know, um, sadly, for most of the listeners, they're not going to be able to see this on video because the video is exclusive to my students. But what I'm uh, currently holding in the mirror is a, is a model of, a, of a one pound of muscle. And mm-hmm. um, I, I find that absolutely fascinating. As uh, And again, I've got one of fat. Um, and these are actually accurate life form models. So, um, in fact, a key thing here is the size difference between a pound of fat and a pound of muscle is not actually that much. Um, mm-hmm. Like you see on social media where a pound of fat is massive compared to a pound of muscle. Um, density is obviously different. Um, but when you appreciate that, you know, it, I guess for listeners, it's, it's a little bit larger than my fist, right? Um, when you spread that all over the body, that's not so much uh, visually, but it is a lot of muscle. So I think to try and bring this to, to what I'm saying is, although the changes are occurring at a very micro level, you won't notice it at a macro level because hypertrophy in a, in a, in a short period of time, that, that fits with people's attention spans. Particularly the attention span of a client's wallet is really where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but I, you know, I think the point though is that things are happening, but it, it, you know, it takes a lot of time. And as we've discussed in this podcast, there is so much stuff going on. So just to, to finish up then, um, for you, what would be your methods of assessing an individual um, at baseline and then going forwards um, in a more coaching setting um, where we are specifically trying to determine hypertrophy, but we're, you know, we're, we're trying to be sensible about this, we're not talking about MRIs and, mm-hmm. and such. What, what, would your, what would your approach be for that? Um, so... I, I've been blessed with uh, access to a DEXA pretty much my whole, whole like scientific career, but most people don't have that, right? Um, so you can do uh, images, so pictures, if, you're, if your athletes buy in. Sometimes it takes a while to get them to actually send you pictures. Um, and, and then if that's the case, I say, you know, keep them for yourself and just compare across time, right? I, I don't need to see them, but it'll help me. Um, then also scale weight is nice uh, to track maybe increases or decreases, and that's an average of seven days is what I usually use. Um, and then tape measurements across areas where they're likely to lose fat or maybe gain muscle. And again, you're not going to – I think my arms have been like the same size for like 10 years. Um, so you may, you may not see anything. You, you, need, you, need, you need to do some deadlifts, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, so a combination of those things, if, if they have access to a skin fold, if they're an athlete, usually you can get someone to do a skin fold on you. Yeah. Um, and that's nice, but again, you know, there's limitations to that too. So a combination of literally everything. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, the reason why I asked that question is, I mean, I've got imaging kit as well and it, it's so difficult. Um, and when you're, you know, even with athletes who are still trying to gauge for themselves, is this working or not? And that impacts their psychological and emotional state, which influences, you know, their uh, state of mind each day that affects their training. It affects the relationships they have with their coaches, the nutritionists. Um, and this, this idea of being an individual is, I mean, we all know we're individuals, but we all 
we all like to think that if we're going to do the right stuff, we're going to respond appropriately. Um, but I guess to bring it back to some of the numbers that we threw in right at the beginning, this is very unlikely to be the average person, isn't it? It's not an average person. It's a very minority scenario. Um, I mean, you know, in your studies that you've sent me, we're, I mean, even those studies are looking at, at best five, 600 people, aren't they? We're not looking at hundreds of thousands of, of people. It, what do you think the reality is in the general population? Um, okay, so you have to kind of take uh, certain things kind of piecewise, right? So if you go to the gym and you do the same stuff, and we see people like this, that uh, I think you mentioned this in one of your other podcasts, the, the person on the treadmill that's been doing the same thing for years, um, yeah. you, you kind of have to break it down into people who are, know what they're doing uh, and people who have no idea. And then the people who have like a coach and really know what they're doing. Because once you get to that third stage, if you really know what you're doing, um, you have potentially a better response, right? So. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, look, I, another recurring theme is test, don't guess. Yeah. Um, happens too often. And, um, you know, pretty much wherever you are, you can find some, you know, some decent testing facilities one way or the other, and it's just worth it. Um, so look, you know, we, we've, um, we've had a good chat on this topic and, um, you know, as with all things, we, we can't get into every component. So I'm going to recommend listeners list, uh, read some of your articles, which is both in lay press, but also some of your, uh, related publications and also those papers you'd sent me. So I'll link to all those in the podcast, uh, resources. Uh, section your uh, research gate and so on but if people want to follow you um, what would your sort of things like Twitter Facebook and website what, what, what would be the main ways that they would find you um, okay so most of my my Twitter is pretty scientific uh, so that's brob21 um, and my Facebook it, it's you know just look up Brandon Roberts on Facebook I post some pretty cool studies on there. Um, and I've kind of used that format to kind of, to kind of bring in studies and then explain like, well, maybe we don't actually know what this says, um, which is good for learning interpretation and things. Um, but yeah, Facebook's probably the best. Uh, Twitter would probably be a good second. I, I'm not good enough with the infographs yet, so not, not Instagram. No, well, it, well, no, I mean, me neither. To be honest, I don't have time. I don't have time. I think there's a... It's a, you know, I think it's great that a lot of practitioners and scientists will share this information, which face it is basically free. Um, but again, you know, there's a lot of people sharing information um, and we should be charging them for pumping out rubbish <laughs> uh, one way or the other. But, um, um, but you, I, I would certainly recommend uh, for listeners to, to follow and learn from. So thank you, Brandon, for your time. It's been awesome. Um, I, uh, I certainly benefited from that and I hope everyone else did. Oh yeah. It was a great time. I, uh, it, it helps to talk to people to even think they're your own ideas. So I, I came to, so. no, that, that's great. Um, so that's, uh, the end of, uh, that, uh, episode guys. Um, if you want to, um, go to guruperformance.com where you'll find all the backlog of all the podcasts. Um, this is 103. I'm trying to aim for quantity, not quality, but um, they are starting to rack up. 
Um, also our um, infographics, info videos, and uh, technical articles that my uh, team and I at Guru Performance are producing, largely with a translational science to practice concept in exercise physiology and performance nutrition, as well as our um, professional education program in performance nutrition. You can learn about that at guruperformance.com. I, of course, am Laurel Bannock, and look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon.